This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hi, I'm Josh Christensen, executive producer of podcasts at Fast Company, and you're listening to Most Innovative Companies. Today, we're bringing you another highlight from Fast Company's 2022 Innovation Festival. This panel is called Rethinking Representation, the Future of Inclusive Storytelling, featuring Ibro Darden, Global Editorial Head of Hip Hop and R&B at Apple Music, Alana Mayo, President at Orion Pictures, and Tracy Sherrod, VP and Executive Editor, Little Brown Publishers. Enjoy. When I was thinking about programming this panel, I could not think of a better group of people because we wanted it to be representative of cross entertainment. So we have music, film, and publishing. So I want to get right into it because each of you have risen to the heights of your careers, always keeping representation in mind. Alana, before Orion, you were working on really culturally relevant films like Fences and Just Mercy. Ebro, you and Hot 97 have been so integral in shaping hip hop culture. And Tracy, before Little Brown, you spent like a decade at Amistad, which is like an institution for black literature. So. As you all have grown in your careers, how has your point of view of representation evolved? Ibra, let's start with you. I think, you know, um, I guess it starts, hip hop has always been a very inclusive kind of space, even though, you know, the, I guess the societal expectations of what inclusivity actually means um, and what's actually successful in hip hop uh, vary as you go decade by decade in hip hop. But when I was coming up, there was people from all walks of life and that's what attracted me to it, uh, both ethnically, uh, you know, gender, all of that. Um, obviously the culture is very rooted in, in some toxic street dysfunction, right? Which manifests itself through what the, the stories that are told and the imagery you see in the videos. But behind the scenes, it's always been people from all walks of life. Um, and so for me, it wasn't as, as inclusivity in that conversation evolves, right? It's never really been difficult for me to learn and, and understand different things because even my origins, right? I'm, I'm a son of a, of a black man and a Jewish woman. Um, I was raised in Northern California, which is as many people know, if you've traveled there, I was born in Berkeley, um, raised in Oakland and Sacramento. So, being around people from all walks of life has just kind of been second nature to me. So when I got opportunities um, in business and with corporations, it was always about finding people who could represent and speak on behalf of and keep us. Because in music, specifically in media, you want to have people on your team that are representing your community, right? I'm technically not in the music business, right? I'm in the media business and radio. I'm in the, I'm, I work for a, a digital service provider, right? We stream music, but we're in the people business. We're trying to find things, content for people of all walks of life to engage with us uh, on a deeper level and come to us more often. So um, the conversation has always been there. We've always been having the conversation. Uh, And as you guys know, probably if you live in New York City, whether it was popular or unpopular, uh, we were having it on Hot 97, too, in many different ways that have gotten, been uncomfortable um, and, and all of that. So uh, we never shot away from it. Um, and it's just part of being a human, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think when you approach things from 
being as human as possible, um, it keeps your mind open. Um, and I think you also know your own flaws and your own blind spots. And you can have that conversation like we often have in the workplace about even to this day when you start talking about pronouns and the pronouns that people prefer. You have a generation that really struggles with making that transition. Um, but that's okay too, right? That's a part of inclusivity is acknowledging that there's some people who are archaic <laughs> and, and, you know, that's and unfortunately not up to the time. <laughs> right. And we have to bring them along in a caring way, the same way we have to care for people who are pushing us in the right direction and, and blazing a new trail. So I think all of that is a part of yeah. being inclusive. You say carry along, I say drag along. Alana, like, <laughs> how has your point of view of representation evolved as you've grown in your career? Well, unlike music, film is not known for being the most inclusive space. I would say, say it's that again. <laughs> and I have always worked inside of Hollywood. So I also, though, I think, like you're saying, Ebro, my, my perspective has expanded from thinking I work in Hollywood, which is this very um, kind of small, exclusive, and frankly, exclusionary place, to thinking I work in media and storytelling. And when I think I work in media and storytelling, I'm here to service an audience. Um, it's not about this club that I work inside of. I'm here to make things that reflect um, and inform the world that I live in. And so when I first started working in Hollywood, I, it's not that I didn't think about um, inclusion and representation because I check about as many boxes of other as exist, but I didn't think that it was something that was possible in a Hollywood space. So I was just, you know, I was, I was weirdly and kind of frankly sadly used to the status quo. Um, and then once I started to shift in thinking of what am I doing here if I'm not telling stories that um, accurately reflect the world that I live in and that also are for all sorts of people, um, then it became actually, then it initially it became about representation because there was such a lack of that. Like I, I worked on a film, Selma, that um, was released the year that Oscar So White started. And that's how much, that's how little representation there is in Hollywood. That there was an online campaign for how white the Oscars have been um, historically. And so initially it was just about how do we get more voices in the room? How do we get more different types of people on screen, more people behind the camera? But where I'm at now, and I think really you know, the exciting thing about where we all are evolving to is realizing that representation is not enough and thinking about what does true inclusivity mean? And, you're right, it is not just the people that have been othered and marginalized. It's um, whether it's dragging along or inviting in, you know, people that, that are part of the status quo that need to evolve if we're going to get to a place of true inclusivity. So it's become a far more complex and frankly difficult conversation for film. Um, you know, what does it mean to tell an authentic story, which is a popular buzzword, but can everybody tell any kind of story? So frankly, we're like very much in process, or I'm at least very much in process of trying to figure out what inclusion means, but I think it's moved way further than representation. Yeah. And Trace, what about in publishing? Um, publishing is very, very different. But I have to say, I, I envy you at the moment, Ebro, for your radio background and everything. Um, so I hope you can hear me well. So I'm, I'm in book publishing, and um, it's not an industry that's very diverse or historically has ever been. So it's uh, quite challenging. And just the other day, I realized that I was 
the person integrating every you know publishing house that I went to, including the one I'm at right now. And so, um, and so it's really different because you know, in order to um, get money for books, give an author an advance which is what we, we do as, as editors. I have to convince you know, several people who are not from a similar background as myself you know, to give me money. And oftentimes, book, most books are auctioned. So oftentimes, it's a lot of money. And what's really wonderful right now is that we are um, in a stage where um, black voices are valued. So it's even more expensive than it's ever been. And um, so, so it's a very, it's a different industry, um, but um, I enjoy it, I love it, and I love what I do, and, and, the, and the kind of books that I've been able to, you know, bring to, bring to the marketplace. You know, such as Cicely Tyson's um, memoir, Just As I Am, you know, Steve Harvey. You know, and, and so many more, so many more that I'm really super proud of. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I, I also, too, or, or, I think part of all of our businesses is what, I brought up what happens behind the scenes in the music business. And if you've ever been around music or media, you'll know there are people from all walks of life in the hallways working at different levels of the game. Um, but sometimes the story and the, and, and the content that's put out for public consumption doesn't reflect that. And I think that is a more of an indictment of when you work in the workplace, is the community that you're speaking to ready to have an honest dialogue about the people in and around your community and, and who is actually listening to you? Mm -hmm. Right, because in media, as you and I'm sure you, we all see it in music. Right, people don't want to talk about their personal lives if they're a host on cable news, right. or if they're a rapper who has to put on this machismo persona, you know, to sell records because that's what's popular in American mainstream. And I think that's sometimes the indictment of who we are as a society. Sometimes I think we kind of want to gloss over that and think that these media outlets or these corporations can fix our societal problems. Mm. And oftentimes in the, in, uh, at Apple, we have uh, serious dialogue uh, about inclusion and diversity. And we often talk about people come to work and bring to the workplace their programming from society. Mm. And then when that spills over into the workplace, people automatically blame the workplace. Oh, my coworker did this. And that's true, right. it should be, because people should have decorum at work, et cetera, et cetera. And certain things should not be allowed. But if we're ever going to get over some of these obstacles, we have to be honest about our coworkers and that they go home to very homogenous, conservative, not, you know, very not progressive communities, but then we expect them to come to the workplace and flip a switch and become this aware, inclusive person. And that's probably why I used the word carry yeah. earlier instead of drag. You're kinder. <laughs> right? Because if we're going to work together, live together, there's going to be times where it's going to be like, hey, I have to work with you, so let me carry you into 
understanding where the world is going, right? Because dragging is not going to be as productive as right. we want, right? And, and that's my, but that's my corporate manager speak, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right? I, I know how to flip a switch. Um, but I've often publicly, because I'm also a host on air, I've also talked about my, my, my honest feeling is I don't, I'm not in the conversion business, right? Like I'm not in the business of begging someone to not be racist, and not dislike me because I have a different complexion or I'm of a different faith. I'm not, I don't have to sit down and get your approval to be who, my, who I am. And so that's a whole other conversation about, you know, how we just conduct one another outside of mm -hmm. the workplace. But I think those are two different conversations sometimes that kind of get lumped into one. What happens in the workplace and how we expect people to come to the workplace and, and, and be uh, open and understanding and wanting to learn about different cultures and different walks of life versus whom people are when they go home, mm -hmm. right? And maybe the workplace can, can help people when they go home, right? Um, you know, one thing I bring up on calls we have sometimes uh, with executives is how many of you guys go home and everyone in your neighborhood looks exactly like you? All of your kids' friends look the same. You guys all go to the same churches, wear the same clothes, eat the same food, right? And then you come to the workplace and you're understanding and learning about different holidays that they don't even teach at your kid's school. And you haven't gone to the PTA meeting to even ask, hey, how come I, I was learning about Juneteenth this year at my workplace, but we don't do that at school, how come? Or do you just not care at all once you leave the workplace and you come to the workplace and you just put on the charade because you kind of have to because inclusion and diversity is in vogue and mm -hmm. you have to do that in the workplace. But if we really want solutions, aren't we going to do this at home? Right. And I think, and you brought up, you, you used the word blind spot earlier and that's something I have it right here because I wanted to ask. I mean, it's always worth bringing up the fact that marginalized communities are not monoliths, right? And speaking specifically with like black people, it's only been recently that I feel like we've been getting more nuanced depictions of like the black experience. And so all of you are in positions of decision-making in terms of like what stories and voices get elevated to Apple or Orion and MGM or, you know, Little Brown. And so how are you addressing your blind spots to make sure that there's diversity in representation? I have to say this is the hardest thing, uh, the hardest part of my job right now, specifically around telling black stories because I have a hubris around that. Because one, I've spent so much of my time in conference rooms pointing and wagging my finger at white people that I work with about the lack of representation of black people. And what I'm realizing now in telling black stories is that black audiences always have been sophisticated and always have wanted, you know, always have been receptive of a lot of different kinds of storytelling, but right now are very, very vocally rejecting certain types of storytelling. So I'm trying to figure out in real time, how do we tell, for example, historical stories that have to deal with black pain. Is that something that black audiences want right now, right? And I'm committed to, I think, I think we're shooting, you know, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face by limiting what kinds of stories we can tell. But I also have to listen to people saying that Hollywood has had one kind of representation for a really long time. We have more slave movies than we have movies that sit in a science fiction genre, right? It's amazing to see the response, the box office response to The Woman King this weekend and to know that 
You can have a woman-led, you know, like, shout out to all of the people involved in that movie, like, a predominantly, almost exclusively female cast that is an action film, but also set, you know, on the continent of Africa, also set, period. Um, and we're, and I think we're realizing as an industry, but what I'm really realizing is that black audiences will demand with their dollars. And there are things that they're tired of Hollywood, you know, representing or misrepresenting. And there's things that they really, really, really want us to do more of. And so it's, it's challenging, you know, engaging audiences on Twitter and online where a lot of that conversation is happening is very, um, stressful and also, you know, very necessary. But I think to your point, Ibro, about like who, not just diversity of identity, but diversity of experience and who is getting to make these decisions. That's why it is so important because even I, Alana, cannot represent exactly. everything that black people want. And I, and, and I have, should you. <laughs> and nor should I, right? And I, I, it's not even just that I have blind spots. You know, I'm very much biased by my own experience, by my own taste. And so in my own hiring and in my own, you know, trying to get out of my ego, you know, as being the person who really has green light power and listen to the team of people, you know, some of whom are like, I think of myself as very young, but some of whom are much younger than I am, and who are like, you have a generational, out of dated, you know, out of touch, <laughs> dated perspective on a lot of things. Thing? All the time, Ebro, if you Yo, can believe it. Oh I know, <laughs> I know. By the way, in the front, Alana's father's yes. here. Oh, right. you, to, oh my yeah. God. Who I used to work for. <laughs> family, family affair here. <laughs> And so I used to hit him with the old Sorry. thing. She used to hit me with the old thing. Now, now she, I love now it. Now full circle. I love it. Now full circle. It, it catches up to you, karma. But all of that is to say, like, I think that's why that perspective and yeah. diversity of perspective and experience is so important. Yeah. And so, Tracy, for you, I mean, how are you addressing these blind spots that you may have in terms of, like, what authors you want to bring to market? Um, well, first, let me, let me ask the audience a question, like, how many people have read five books or more this, in the last year? See, this is why I love the it's not. It's not looking <laughs> bad. It's not looking bad. Like maybe a quarter of right. the audience, it looks like. We smart. And so... <laughs> five is a high number. I thought you were going to be like two. That's a high you know, number. Two, I'd be like... <laughs> five. It's only and, September. <laughs> Catch up, you one. And I asked that question because books are tough to sell. Yeah. Extremely tough to sell. Sometimes we were standing on a corner trying to give away free books and you can't get people to take them. You know, so for me, I have to be very um, specific when I um, acquire a book. Like when I'm reading the proposal, I'm thinking, who's the audience, you know, and, and, and very specifically, who's the audience. So I might say, okay, this book is for, I, I publish African-American books, black books, is my preference and my preference only. Um, and so when I'm getting ready to acquire those books and then thinking about the conversations I need to have with other people, um, are, are very different. So I can get a pr proposal in and I can present it as a book, um, and, and I'm thinking of one that, that recently came in that I acquired. And I'm thinking there are different aspects of this book. The first, first aspect is it's written by a black man. 
It's written by a black man who's been in jail, another aspect. And he addresses and covers literature like a genius English professor. So for me, there are layers of an audience for this book. I can see the general public reading it for the insight of literature from the great Gatsby to the autobiography of Malcolm X, and this will all be covered in, in, a, single, in a single book. But you know, but I'm also thinking I have a, my heart of who I want to have read this book and have their lives changed would be black men who, have the, who might have the potential to end up in jail. So that they won't. So that's the audience I'm, I'm editing toward when I'm editing the book. And then once that part I feel is met, then I open up to the rest of the audience. So I start with a very niche audience and then I build on that. And I don't always count other people in the P&L, if you will, the P&L of deciding who's going to buy that book. I might just count the core because I have to reach that core for anyone to read it, is what I believe. Yeah. I think, can I, that's such an interesting point, and I'm curious how you feel working in hip-hop, which has now transcended that, because I feel like so much of your job, if you're creating content for, you know, marginalized audiences or whatever, underrepresented audience, whatever the language. The breath you took before you said marginalized. I know, I'm like, <laughs> the language is so lacking. But, um, but is, is saying, oh, well, this, this is, you know, we know we can reach this core audience and thus the budget should address what we think this core audience is, but we believe that it can break out and become more mainstream or whatever the case is. And what I always say, especially if I'm um, pitching something or modeling something that's specifically targeted towards a black and brown audience and or a younger audience is like, I'm always like, well, look at hip hop, right? Or sports, you know? And especially when I'm having a conversation about what can work internationally. I'm like, how is it possible that Kendrick Lamar can be can have a global tour that sells out, and we this movie starring ex black actor can't. Um, so hip hop is now what, fifty years into it's being a mainstream. Fifty years next August. Yep. So how does it work? Do you still feel like that's marginalized? Do you still feel like you're having to make those arguments because it would be helpful to be fifty years along arguing, doing argue, this? arguing with whom? Nope. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Because there's certain once again there's certain conversations I just don't have with certain people right. like. Yeah. It's not for you. You don't get it. You'll catch up later. We don't have to talk to you. Um, you know, and I'm mostly speaking when I'm talking about like corporate types or whatever. But if we were to talk about media uh, and specifically what, me what keeps media going, which is advertising dollars, mm. um, then you would see a real... Uh, I would become very triggered and angry. I've been in radio since 1990, 30, over 30 years. And um, hip hop since, I mean, I was in radio when the first hip hop format. Matter of fact, Alana's dad who's here was the first program director to play rap music on the radio all day long. We thank you for your service. At Kiss, <laughs> at, at Kiss FM in New York City playing Run DMC, Sucker MCs. At, at times of the day when people were saying, well, we can't play that street music. We don't want to hear those ideas from those black men from those walks of life 
at this time of day. Like, it's, it's not appropriate. Now, it became increasingly popular in the 90s, but advertisers still did not want to stand next to it. I mean, you, some of you may or may not know about the infamous facts that came across that Al Sharpton got a hand on and went to a bunch of advertisers, came from an agency that says, do you want clients or do you want culprits? Insinuating basically the only people listening to rap music were criminals, right? And as you, as I don't have to tell you how this story goes, but we know that for hip hop to be this successful, it can't just be criminals <laughs> buying concert tickets and, and buying the music. Like it doesn't, the math isn't mathing. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's still a thing. At Hot 97 in New York, I could be number one, 18 to 34 men. And there's just certain advertisers who just won't buy it. Hmm. Even if their target is men. Um, they could say, oh, we have a sports mandate. We don't buy music. All right, fine. Okay. Um, so, yeah, no, people who listen to rap music don't use Gillette or don't use. I've been, I've been in sales meetings where a hot dog advertiser, Oscar Mayer, was questioning whether or not people who listen to Hot, hot, hot 97 were interested in hot dogs. I, oh, <laughs> all right. But these things are, I mean, and anyone that works in advertising or has worked in media, you will know these are real conversations when people are trying to hit their metrics or when you're targeting a book. These are real conversations that you're having with humans who breathe the same air and drink the same water, water and put on pants the same way you do. They act like other humans don't have the same needs. And that's, and I remember- Toothpaste, I've had toothpaste conversations. <laughs> Okay. But, but, I, but so at a certain and look point, at our just, and in hip hop, <laughs> and in hip hop, we've learned to just go about doing what we want to do that's best yeah. for telling our story. And there's things obviously about in the music that we, we argue amongst ourselves, whether we, things are too uh, materialistic or too misogynistic or too violent. We have these conversations I had. Um, but I, I say all that to say that uh, it is something that you have to really focus on who your audience is and what you're trying to achieve, right? Um, Hot 97 in New York City has the most diverse listening audience of any radio station in the country. It is a third black, a third Spanish speaking, and a third white, Indian, Asian, and other. There's not a radio station on earth that has that. And obviously it's the, it's the community we serve here in New York City. It's also because it's hip hop, which is, you know, very popular with many different audiences. But advertisers would act like, oh, I don't know if this is for us. Like, what are you, what are you even talking about? So you have to know that, and I, in your business, you guys, and in your business, you have to prove to someone to open up the bank account and cut the check so that you can. In, in my business, it was just be the best for the audience in hip hop that you can be, yeah. right? And, and do the best job being as dynamic and involved in the community that you can be. And that was, that's always been the mandate. And even now where I work at Apple Music, uh, the mandate is do the best for hip hop and R&B and black music mm -hmm. that you can be, that we can be as Apple Music. Because this is the first time in black music history where black executives actually get to sit at Apple and figure out how to get more black faces in country music, mm -hmm. right? How to make sure black faces are represented in blues, how to make sure black faces are represented in pop music, 
right? And we have these conversations because that's another turn on inclusion. Because when you think of black music, many people in here would only think of hip hop and R&B. But every single popular music that you know in your life today was created by black Americans. There you go. <laughs> and, and our ancestors in Africa, literally everything. But you don't see our faces in pop, or you don't see our faces in country, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's a, it's another spin on the inclusion thing, because how come black people aren't included in other forms of music? This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So, and I mean, I feel like we have to have a conversation about, in 2020, obviously we saw this massive uprising against police brutality and systemic racism altogether. And that was when a lot of companies across industries were making these pledges to do better, to be more inclusive, to, you know, where we, we promise, you know, we see the light now. And so do you feel like in your respective industries of film, music and publishing, have these companies kept the same energy in 2022? I can only speak for the one I work for, which is the answer would be yes. Uh, we have invested, we committed $100 million. Um, and uh, we have, I mean, we're building in Detroit, we're building in Atlanta. Um, obviously, the work that we're doing inside with, you know, promotion of executives and recruitment and these other things. Um, and just generally leading in, we have a program called Reggie that many of you may or may not know about. You can read up about it, um, how we make investments. Uh, as well as um, different incubators in America, as well as internationally, to get black and brown kids and young people into uh, understanding ways that they can find employment in technology and, and understanding what Apple looks for, right? When they're hiring and just understanding what it takes to be at Apple. So that work uh, is happening. Um, we also have open conversation about how the tech world basically skipped over black and brown kids in America mm. um, because our public school system was not preparing our youth the way other countries were preparing their youth for these jobs in tech. And so the workforce just wasn't here and our kids weren't ready. And so this over the last 20, 25 years, this boom happened and black and brown kids just we weren't there. Yeah. And so now what can these companies do to make sure that they're investing in our neighborhoods here in America to make sure that our children here in the United States have an opportunity to get these jobs too. Right. So those conversations definitely happen. For sure. And Tracy, I mean, so from 2020, did you see any major push or shift in publishing to be more inclusive and have, and has that continued two years later? Um, yes, companies made a, a huge push in, in 2020, um, even though we were pushing in the wrong direction well. in, in the sense that um, one of the major answers for um, diversity inclusion in publishing was to um, have white editors do more black books or more gay books or more, <laughs> you know, I mean, LBGTQ plus or Latinx, et cetera. And then the second step was, you know, we'll, we'll bring some other people into publishing. And um, you really, publishing is really an industry on the editorial side where you need, um, it's an apprenticeship program. That's how it works. Because you need the skills to be able to convince someone to give you a million bucks. 
You need skills to um, know how to put a book into production. You need skills to know how to edit a book. You need skills. I mean, there's so many levels, and that's part of the training. So they hired a lot of people from the outside, and I don't think that will speak toward longevity. And, um, and I don't think that they will be able to um, have successes for quite some time. And so, so we didn't start off on the, on the right foot, if you ask me. And, um, and, and when I say, you know, diversify and include in publishing, and I'm, I'm speaking for the entire industry. So there are 32 roughly black um, editors and a handful of Asian editors, et cetera. And to give you an idea of what that means, like one of the top five publishers has 700 editors worldwide. And so I'm talking about, you know, the entire industry and that's how, you know, that's how, mm, so <laughs> I, I don't know what word to use. So we're kind of making progress in the sense that it, it you know, it is an industry full of intellectuals, but, um, well, sort of. I shouldn't say that, but because um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure every industry is, and um, so we're struggling a little bit. Um, so now it's two years later, and there's fallout from hiring people who are not qualified. You know, some have already let, left or been let go, or however you want to put it, and um, and books have been overpaid for. So there's, you know, going to be multiple, you know, authors of color whose book, they have no chance of earning out that advance. And the only, you know, consequence of that is if you're an editor of color is that you may lose your job if this big book doesn't earn out. And the author, it's going to be pretty dang hard for them to ever get another book deal again. So, so that part is, is unfortunate. But if you happen to be a, a white editor who acquires a black book, the consequences are not the same. It's only then at that moment that they recognize, you know, that market's a little different. You know, so you're not an expert, which they should have recognized when they're trying to acquire something that seems outlandish. And, and they can acquire something that, that is outlandish because this is one white person talking to another white person about a black project. And so, of course, they're going to have like minds about it. And they're going to think all of their friends are going to go out and buy it, you know. But, you know, my publishing friends whose homes I've been to, I don't see black books on their shelves, even the ones that they published. So I don't see the audience that they're seeing, I think, is one of um, optimism. Yeah. And we have to pay the price for that. Right. And Alana, I mean, I feel like in the film and TV industry, it's probably the most visible in terms of, like, you know, we've seen the, such a shuffle at all the academies and like you mentioned Oscar So White. And so for you, I mean, same question, like from 2020 to 2022, like have you seen people keep up the same energy of rah-rah inclusion, rah-rah diversity? You saw this kind of very quick, um, extreme reaction of what can we do? And also I think what was actually probably the most productive was recognizing that as an industry, we were complicit in, like directly complicit in violence against black people, if only looking at, you know, portrayals of um, policing and the um, legal system in America and mainstream Hollywood output. So there was a lot of really, really great progress um, and, and a lot of really important awareness that, you know, it's devastating and 
unfortunate that, you know, the loss of life is what some people needed to wake up to that awareness, but they did. Um, and, you know, again, the level of, I moved to LA in 2006 to start doing this, and the level of representation um, and the, the amount of people that are given dollars, which, you know, Hollywood is a capitalist endeavor, is really the most significant lever um, that, that we're not, you know, 16 years ago when I first moved to LA is also staggering. But if you're asking about keeping the same energy, I think the reality is that people, you know, it, kind of similar to how it sounds like the publishing industry reacted, I think people wish that there were a quick fix to this. You know, they wish that there were a DI hire plus, you know, a couple of trainings and then like a seminar and then, yay, systemic racism, we've cool. solved it. And, and I'll be... We can we're getting all over there. Let's get you guys out of the right. way. Let's right. stop talking about this. It's uncomfortable. Right. Mm -hmm. And as I hope everybody in this room knows, that is not the case. So I think what we're grappling with is one, we're in the throes of a culture war in this country and all of us are sitting, you know, at ground zero of that. And so unfortunately being a conscious black executive, um, a woman, a queer woman, like means that I am constantly engaging that and will probably for the entirety of my career in this yeah. industry. Um, but I also think that, you know, really the energy that we need from, you know, ultimately like the very wealthy, very powerful, small, small group of people that control 99% of these industries is an awareness that the problems are systemic, is an awareness that this is a long, long, long haul yep. and the investment in that. Oof. <laughs> that's, the, that's the key. Yeah. Even, even, even in your question, the expectation that after 24 months, we will have somehow began to solve mm. or, you know, even, uh, I don't know, jot, jotted down the perfect solution mm. for what we've inherited yeah. and, or what we're, and where we're trying to go is, I think, often um, it's just misdirected. Like, we can't, I don't even think we should be thinking through that frame mm -hmm. of, you know, of, of looking at, you know, gaining ground in two years, we should be looking at gaining ground in, in five. I know we need it now mm -hmm. and work needs to happen now, but there's so many systems, individuals uh, that are, are standing in the way of progress at every level just because change might mess up their bottom line. Mm -hmm. right. And they don't want to make that change on their watch. They want to get their bonus and get up out of here, right? right? And so um, I, I just say all that to say that, you know, we have to continue to take an always-on approach. Like, this is life work. This is generational work. This isn't, it will not, we will not be done having this conversation anytime soon. Yeah, right. Uh, and if it makes you uncomfortable, I think part of the learning is it's supposed to. Yeah. Like, we're all supposed to be uncomfortable we're all supposed to acknowledge our blind spots. We're all supposed to know what we know and, and, and scream from the mountaintops things we don't know and don't understand and reach into communities to find individuals that live the life that we're trying to understand and trying to teach other people about. Um, and, and, and I spend a lot of time saying, I don't know. Yeah. Right. I, I don't I don't I've never done that. Never been there. 
right? I, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm, you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm not non-binary. I'm not, I'm not these things. I, I have people on my team that are or have family members that are, right? Um, never forget a young man came to me. There was someone who wanted to uh, pitch Dave Chappelle for my Apple show. And a guy that works on my show, his, his sister is trans and was just kind of like, please, you know, don't do this. And it was just like, I love hearing that. And of course we didn't do it, but that's what you need to hear, right? right? Like one interview, one piece of content's not gonna make or break my show. Like if that makes somebody who gives to my show every single day uncomfortable, right. we don't need to do that. I love that's that. fine, we move on. Right. Um, but it's those things where you have to as, whether you're a leader, you wanna be a leader, uh, you're currently trying to understand the team that you're on. It's, it's literally about acknowledging areas that you are not familiar with and ignorant about and being completely okay with that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we often uh, have conversations on our team about people making mistakes. And if someone makes a mistake, uses the wrong pronoun, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, someone in the workplace, they were Michael, now they're Michelle. Somebody still called them Michael. Michelle's gotta say, hey, I'm Michelle now. Mm -hmm. And know that that person wasn't doing that, you know, to be malicious, but they are still trying to learn this change. And I think that's on every level of us being inclusive. Right. And Tracy, I think you want to add something? So there's a one part I don't, I don't really like, which is to say that um, it's hard. Mm. You know, because I, I don't think it should be hard to say, hey, tell me about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, come on over here. We're a group over here. Come join us for right. a while. I think that should be easy. But everybody, I don't know why they think it, it's so tough and so hard. And if you're confused, just ask the question, what, is, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know? And uh, I had to ask, I, you know, one of the assistants, I said, why do you have she and her on your, who are they? I don't know. Your mic is not working. She, why do you have she and her? I said, you know, who are they? You know, like, right. you know, and then she broke it down to me and I said, oh, that's a beautiful thing. Right. You know, because I recognize, you know, what, where things were lacking. Well, yeah, you're, so. uh, but you're also, I think that's high intellect, right? I think somebody who's comfortable and, and somebody who is truly high intellect is okay saying they don't know something. Mm. It's people who are trying to put on that they know everything <laughs> that don't ask questions. <laughs> right, absolutely. Part of being high intellect is wanting to learn in, in that whole process. But as we can tell by things we see in society, we won't and be political today. Not everyone is high intellect as they think they are. This is true. <laughs> and we'll... We have just a few minutes left, so I want to ask, you know, obviously the theme of this year's festival is Innovation Unbound. So I'm curious to know, is there anything you all need to let go of to be a more, to be a better or more innovative leader going forward? Is there anything right now that's holding you back from being your best self? Hmm. I, I, I'll just say, I think um, so much, as you said at the beginning, so much of my career has been defined by being the person who's championing diversity, equity, and inclusion in whatever language we had at whatever time to define that. And I think what I'm realizing, what I really appreciate talking to younger people is that I've been so married to this conversation of identity. And in some ways it's limited 
what I see as possible for myself, what I see as possible for the content, what I see as possible for people on my team. And I think it's recognizing that for me, DEI is just baked into who I am as a person. It's just always going to be how I do things. There's ways in which I need to learn more and I'm, you know, and grow more, but that that just is what it is. But, but I think I've, I've heard a lot of young artists talk about wanting to remove, you know, even like the trappings of identity to see how else they would define themselves. You know, how much of who I am is because I was raised in the suburbs of Chicago. How much of who I am is because of, you know, the parents that I have, the family that I have. And so that I can see that in other people and allow them to imagine more possibilities than they can imagine for themselves. Right. Tracy, is there anything you need to let go? Um, I'd, I'd say passion gets in my way. You know, I was so trying to show the world how much money black books could make that I nearly killed myself. You know oh, damn. I mean? so, yeah, so less passion. If I can have less passion about that aspect of it. Just, yeah, please don't leave us. And, and just let it roll out and, and, and maneuver past the people who are standing in the way thinking, you know, from other cultures thinking they're a DEI expert. So, yes. I would would probably say similar passion Mm -hmm. stands in the way of of not hearing. And most of the time, (laughs) most of the time, I'm not listening to people under the age of 18. What? (laughs) You got to change that, Ebro. Um, And it... It, so, yeah, it's, I, I have a generational kind of ageism thing where it's kind of like. It's in your hand, old man stop Ebro. Telling, you yeah, say it. Stop telling me what kids are into, man. I'm not talking to kids, man. I'm talking to people over 25 with jobs that have problems. You know, I don't, so I, I got to. It, it, it's work for me to do that. That's, that's why I need to work. You know what I mean? Because like, a, a 15, 16-year-old kid, they like something for, what, 30 days? Like, why are, we, why are we basing our decisions on somebody who's going to change their mind in two weeks? I love how even in saying that you're going to work on that. Right, I know, yeah, I know. You're going to work on it, you're like, what do they know? It's a lot of exercise. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today. Thank you so much. No this problem. was absolutely wonderful. <laughs>